Terry is in where? Buffalo. Buffalo. Oh, you're freezing your tush off. <laughs> oh, my God. Um, it's quite cozy in my basement. Welcome to the RC Roundtable Podcast, where we discuss the latest RC hobby news, events, model reviews, and a whole lot more. This is RCR. Well, hello, everyone. Welcome to the RC Roundtable, episode number 145. And uh, I think we'll have a really interesting show for you today. I am Fitz Walker, and joining me is Lee Ray. Hello, all. And, of course, Terry Dunn. Well, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> Someone's hungry. Yeah, yeah. sorry. I'm, I'm channeling my former Texas self. I'm having some tacos. Ooh, taco. Ghetto tacos from New York. Street uh, tacos? Uh, <laughs> yeah, frozen street tacos. No, just tacos. <laughs> okay. All right, anyways, we got a very special guest with us today. We have Dr. John Leanhard. Hello, doctor. Hi, how are you? Glad to be here. Ah, we are so glad for that you're here with us as well. Uh, professor Leonhard is a professor of emeritus of mechanical engineering and history at the University of Houston. Uh, but he's best known as the creator and the voice of the Engines of Our Ingenuity radio program, which is heard nationally on public radio. And we're so glad to have you here. Just a little bit of history. I met uh, the professor some years ago. He gave a speech at our place of work and it was a fascinating speech i believe you talked about the history of architecture and churches or something like that and it was it, it was more far more interesting than it sounds <laughs> um but i i must admit i really had not heard of the engines of ingenuity program uh which is he's based here in houston uh and but I was curious about the subject, and after he gave the speech, he said, oh, and by the way, I'm looking for additional uh, contributions to my radio program. Uh, he's, he said he was, I guess, backing away a little bit and had a lot of guest speakers. And if you're interested, uh, contact him. And so after the speech, I said, well, why not? I'll, I sauntered up to him and kind of sheepishly said, hey, I'm kind of interested. Um, what do I need to do? And uh, the professor kindly said, just, just uh, bring send... that voice. Just bring that voice. Bring that radio voice of yours. Exactly. It's so soothing. Bottle that up and sell it. Well, the voice is one thing. Being able to write a good script is another. So he actually sent me a script guide and says, here's the information. See what you got. What you got, kid. Uh, so I never told you this, professor, but I actually, when I sent you the first two scripts, I, I specifically made them very different to see what kind of, uh, which state I'd take. Okay. Yes. Which state you would, which take you would take. And to my surprise, you like both of them. <laughs> and, uh, so the rest is history. So occasionally you would hear me on national public radio, uh, countrywide, thanks to the kindness of Celine Hart. And you're yeah. due to give us some more scripts pretty soon. Yes, I have one submitted already. Unfortunately, the, the studio was closed due to the, the Omicron variant. It just popped up. So they were being a little careful. But as soon as they open back up, I have another script that's ready to go. Now go in and record. I think it'll be just a week or two. Oh, oh cool. Uh, great. I'm 
looking forward to it. Um, but, I, but we're here on the RC Roundtable, and one of the things, as I got to know the professor, is that he is a big fan of aircraft and all things that fly. And not only that, he built model aircraft in his youth, uh, quite a bit of model aircraft. And when I found that out, I thought, man, I would love to have him on the show to talk about building model aircraft, especially when he did it was quite a while ago. And a lot of it took place during uh, World War II. And so I thought this would be a fascinating historical uh, sort of, um, uh, what I don't know what to say other than a a nice I'm 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 sort of a historical artifact. <laughs> <laughs> well, one that we appreciate very much, and we just love to hear your story and uh, your take on modeling and, and all aspects of this great hobby that we have, and of course the real aircraft. If you want to talk about that as well, so without any further ado, uh, Professor, welcome to the show. Well, okay. What uh, what can I uh, what can I do to start? What are you interested in? Well, uh, shall I talk a little bit about the uh, the 1930s? Yes, I think that'll lead us right into what we I like to ask a lot of our guests is, how did you get into the hobby and about how old were you when it happened? Oh, I was probably, uh, probably about, must have been about 1936 or so that I started. Um, and uh, I was still in grade school. And... Uh, uh, at the time, I was doing badly in school. I was dyslexic, and but uh, the three-dimensional world was sort of my avenue into understanding things. And oh, model airplanes were so marvelously three-dimensional. You know, the you'd watch, uh, you'd put together balsa wood and sticks and tissue, and suddenly you'd have this uh, object that was so light and buoyant and beautiful. It uh, it just enchanted me, and so uh, I uh, I uh, I was doing a lot of building in the late 1930s, and then the war began in 40 for us in 41 for Europe in 39 for China in 37. I mean it was those were were tough years, uh, and uh, I built all the way through through high school. And uh, then I got into college in uh, the post-war years, and uh, it sort of drifted away, but I kind of came back to it now and then. I built some, uh, uh, actually, when I was in graduate school, and I did a little bit uh, when I was teaching. But, but uh, mostly my, uh, my model building was done back in the... Uh, in the balsa glue and acetone age of building. I can only imagine the smells when you're trying to build stuff. Oh, with those. I, I grooved on acetone. I guess <laughs> glue sniffing, you know, became a kind of dope thing. And I was <laughs> doing a certain amount of it accidentally at the time, I guess. But, but, uh, uh, yeah, uh, the, uh, uh, I suppose that much of what we were doing would be, well, is forbidden now. <laughs> Mom, I'm just building a plane. Trust me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't want to deviate too much from the modeling subject, but you mentioned that you weren't a good student and that you were dyslexic. Was dyslexia even 
understood at that time, or were you just a lazy troublemaker? Uh, yeah, lazy and stupid was the diagnosis back then, and yeah. so it was it was pretty difficult. The word didn't come into existence until, oh, I think the late 50s or 60s. Wow. That must have been liberating to finally understand how your mind was different. Oh, yeah. In fact, the course that finally, where I finally got traction in high school after getting C's and D's all the way through and F's, uh, uh, in my senior year, I took a drafting course. And uh, suddenly this world opened up and I whammed through three years of the subject in one, uh, just uh, ate it up. And uh, in fact, that was what got me into engineering ultimately, the fact that I suddenly saw that I had a competence that I didn't realize was there. Wow, Do you think the same thing that the unique way that your brain was wired that manifested as dyslexia also gave you uh, special abilities in that 3D world? Well, yeah, I, I think it's connected. I, it was, uh, I always found uh, visual workarounds all the way through engineering school. I was, I was finding visual workarounds without quite realizing it. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, uh, the model building was so wonderfully visual. You know, you'd see these things come off a two-dimensional page and get this three-dimensional beauty. It was it was wonderful. Now, with think, these, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Uh, I was going to ask if you thought model building was also part of your gateway into engineering world. Oh, it absolutely was. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I uh, I had an idea of structure, tension compression. Uh, I knew something about uh, internal combustion engines as a result of working with airplane engines, uh, something about electrical circuitry, uh, a lot of things. Uh, by the way, back in those days, we did not have glow plugs, and it was old spark ignition with coils and condensers and everything in the airplane. Wow. So well, I imagine those were pretty good size airplanes to carry all of that gear. Uh, not necessarily. You know, I mean, the smaller gas models were maybe a couple feet in wingspan. Okay. And the U-control models were, you know, basically very small. Sure. Uh, very small by your lights, I would say. When you first described it, I had the smaller rubber band powered models in oh, my yeah. head. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. In fact, uh, there were kits that went for as little as a nickel. You could buy a nickel kit, then you get a little thing with maybe a, a 12 inch wingspan. And uh, uh, as far as flying, it would be pretty much a dud, but you know, you'd have the fun of building it. Uh, and uh, from there, it went up. Uh, a really good kit would cost you a dollar. <laughs> wow. Hmm. Those are the fancy kits. I, I did have a, kind of a one question, harding back to building during the wartime. Were supplies in short uh, uh, demand or were hard to get during the wartime years for model building? Um, yes and no. Uh, I really took up gas engines just toward the end of the war. And uh, of course, gasoline was rationed, but you know, how much did you use? 
you would get a little bit of white gas, so-called. White gas was unleaded, uh, what they called unleaded gas at the time. And you'd mix it with heavy-duty motor oil uh, to lubricate the engines. And uh, there was little enough of that that uh, uh, it... uh, it didn't make much of a dent as far as the rationing was concerned. <laughs> yeah, I guess you could siphon a little bit out of your parents' vehicle or something. They wouldn't well, notice that because that was leaded. You have to go to a station with a little bottle. Uh, yeah, and you could usually pick up a, a few ounces you needed. Yeah, that was uh, not much of a problem. Ah, interesting. So were there many kits to choose from or were you mainly scratch building from plans well, during that time? Let me talk about kits. Uh, uh, I have an engines episode, which uh, uh, I would recommend to you. It's number uh, 3217. And uh, it uh, tells you about the uh, the evolution of model airplane kits, which occurred in the late 1920s perhaps actually spurred on by the popularity of Lindbergh's flight in 1927. Mm. So so the first kits, uh, uh, the first kits began to arrive in the late 20s. And so kits were fairly new. Before that, you would get catalogs that would sell you plans. They would sell you they would sell you balsa wood uh, and various parts and things, propellers. You could buy them, and then you'd you'd put things together yourself. The first kits, though, uh, Gillow and Comet, of course, was the big one that emerged. And I was building probably more Comet kits than anything at first. Is is that familiar to you, Comet? Oh yes, yes, That's right. And Gillow yeah. is still around. Oh, it is. Is Comet yes. is still exist? No. No. I don't believe so. Yeah. But anyway, those uh, those kits were, were just beginning to come on the market. And uh, uh, so basically I was doing all my stuff from kits. But then, of course, I would get interested and I would start freelancing. And uh, actually, I gave uh, uh, Fitz uh, my old engines and... Uh, and uh, my old airplane plans and he in in amongst them were several sketches i made of of things that i was doing by my own design uh as i got into it you know ideas that i had wondering if you make this work or that ah you got it i see uh uh yes we'll put a link to your uh to the show and to engines episode uh when we go we publish this podcast for listeners to easily. Okay. Well, let me give you two more numbers. Sure. 233 and 2297. Fantastic. Yeah. And they might might be of some interest. Anyway, uh, uh, so uh, I was pretty much suffused in the whole model building thing in the years from... Uh, Oh, probably 36 through 46. Uh, was it a solo activity or were there clubs you could join? People oh, to no clubs. I had, uh, uh, I, you know, gradually found a couple of friends who were also interested in building. Uh, 
uh, and uh, they would, uh, uh, you know, we get together and uh, and uh, do some things together. But basically, it was a solo activity. There, uh, no club, no, no club. Uh, it it was pretty much a thing that a kid did by himself, and it's very, very different in texture from what you all are up to today. Uh, it was a kid's activity. Very few grown-ups were involved in it, and uh, the grown-ups that were were people that were going on and maybe uh, beginning to uh, uh do the rudiments of radio control, which was just kind of in the background at the time, and uh, were also getting into it from the business end. But uh, basically, it was a kid's activity. And that's something that I've talked to Fitz about and something that kind of worries me. Uh, Now it's increasingly a grown-up's activity, and one that uh, I find, you know, many engineers are are involved in engineers or people that have an engineer's capability. Well, that's been a common observation. I would say for decades now that there aren't as many kids in the hobby as there used to be. And I don't know if you're familiar with a, a group called Flight Test, but you know anybody who listens to the show knows that we have mixed opinions overall, but if nothing else, they have proven that there's still a very strong interest from young kids in the hobby. So it's just a matter of finding the right elements to introduce them to all the different aspects. And the way Flight Test did it is they designed a few planes that use the cheap foam board and hot glue to put basically disposable models together. So they made it easy and accessible and relatively cheap. And that seemed to be the secret sauce to getting kids back into the hobby. So hopefully we can keep going with that momentum and turn things around. What is missing, or is it, is the craftsmanship, the kids' craftsmanship, uh, or is it missing? You talk about uh, enough uh, pre-construction that they don't have to do much of that, or am I missing the point? Um, maybe to a degree, I, there's probably two main elements here. There's the, the building aspect and then the flying aspect. And for the people who are only interested in the flying, this is the gateway that allows them to get involved uh-huh. and for the people who are interested in the building as well, or maybe only the building, there's enough flexibility there that they can exercise that muscle of craftsmanship as well. If you go to one of these events, you will see some that look like they were thrown together in the back of the car on the way to the field and others that are very precise, very well done. Um, So I think it runs the gamut and there's enough flexibility there to allow people to pursue whatever aspect of it is they're interested in. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was looking at, uh, a model that uh, Fitz just built, and it was uh, interesting to me. It was a glider with actually a small engine to tow it up to altitude, and uh, it had a clear pla- a clear covering, so you could can see the construction, the wing construction in it, and it's that internal construction uh, 
that uh, enamored me as a kid. And uh, does a kid still get to see the internal construction, to touch it, to handle it, to make it happen? Yeah, I would say with the foam board, no. But what, at least what I think generally happens is the foam board is a gateway to the balsa airplanes and other things. So, yeah, if that particular aspect interests them, they can lead right to it. And then they already have the foundation of cutting things and gluing things and trimming an airplane and and all of that. So I I think it's uh, fundamentally a good pathway for people to get started. And hopefully they see the broader elements of the hobby and and branch out into that. Go ahead, Lee. (laughs) <laughs> I, I was going to chime in and mention my son, Austin. I, I would never expect, expect to compare him to your engineering skills, but you mentioned something that I think is important. You talked well, about the crafts. Not. I mean, you know, I was a kid too. <laughs> well, no, I understand that. I was like, I, I don't know if my son would be to that level, but in modern times now, one thing he has access to that you didn't have back then was he's using CAD to create his own aircraft. And oh. so he is having to come up with that. Now, it's certainly not as structured as the, the balsa plane or the leprechaun that you were talking about, Terry's, uh, excuse me, Fitz's glider. But he is doing this in school to design an aircraft. And he's making it so he can laser cut it out on their laser cut machines so he can put it together. And it, it's certainly not the same as building with balsa like I have done. And, of course, Fitz and Terry. But, I, you know, I still feel like there's that mental ability for kids today to take the newer technology and create aircraft, not to mention that both Fitz and I have created 3D printed aircraft, things you didn't do back then, but there is still that part of, you know, the structure, how is it built, how is it glued together, and, uh, you know, there's that, but as far, I, I when you said craftsmanship, I was like, yeah, you don't see kids trying to replicate scale models like you, like, well, Fitz definitely with his plastic models, but I'm not giving up. I think there's still a, you know, that opportunity will get the youth to see that it's still necessary. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and of course, craftsmanship isn't going to be the same thing uh, a century later. It just just isn't. So, you know, I, I grant that. In fact, you talk about 3D printers. Uh, one thing that uh, was always the most labor-intensive was cutting out the airfoils from a piece of balsa. Uh, And they weren't pre-stamped. And I remember that the nastiest task was cutting out the little notches for the stringer. (laughs) I I know that. I've I've had that experience. Printing the damn thing on a machine (laughs) will glory be. (laughs) Yeah, that was the easy part. In fact, that happened to me. I When I had started building flying models i started with the rubber band power and i built a bunch of gillows as you mentioned and then one day i saw a comet kit that i thought oh that looks kind of neat and more was i disappointed when i took it home and found that you the wood was just printed <laughs> yes with quarter inch wide ink <laughs> yeah i was like wait a minute <laughs> no two ribs are alike <laughs> but i did it i, I spent the time to, to do the craftsmanship but uh, i had been spoiled by the die cut or die crushed as they called it back then fascinating yeah but yeah. 
Um, but you, I think we, you hit on something in that the craftsmanship is still there. It's just a little different now, even with, with the, the foam board planes and the 3d printing it's, it's, it's there, but it has, I guess, modernized in lack of a better term. And well, we have a broader variety of mediums to exercise that craftsmanship. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I, in fact, when I go out and watch, uh, grown up model flyers today, uh, you know what I see them doing is extraordinary. The beauty and the the detail of the models they bring to the to the shop are just astonishing. Uh, it's uh, uh, so you know I'm not uh, knocking the craftsmanship there, but it's just uh, I, I know that I'm looking at something that a that a uh, a, a nine year old probably uh, you know wouldn't be able to do. Well, and you mentioned a lot of the older people are the ones doing it. Well, I think it's just their rite of passage. Maybe when they were kids, they never finished that model and did a good job, and they, you know, it, it, they flew <laughs> it and it crashed the the same day. So this is their penance. <laughs> they're, 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 they're saying, <laughs> now that I'm retired and I have time, I'm going to build that plane perfectly. It's going to look great. And you're not wrong. I mean, there are some events that I've attended. Uh, there's a huge uh, flying event in Monteville, Texas, called uh, the B17 and and uh, Big Bird fly-in that all of us have attended and the craftsmanship of those planes by these older people, they just, it's amazing. So again, like I said, it's probably those, you know, when they were kids, they didn't try as hard and now they can. Right. Well, and then they fly them like they hate them. <laughs> they what? Yeah. They fly those very nice airplanes as if they hate them as fast as they can and doing all sorts of maneuvers. Oh, okay. <laughs> really overly aggressive. Yeah. Uh, but um, it's interesting because, the, the whole thing of getting youth involved has been a constant battle for, like Lee said, decades. And what's interesting is, I, I, in fact, I just came for this past weekend from a plastic model show. And what a lot of those shows do is they will have specific categories just for children. Those that have a 12 and under or, or teenagers only or something. So that to encourage the kids to build models and they're not competing against adults with 30 years of experience building models. And so they have their own class. So they, they try to encourage them. There's usually a token amount that participate in it, but getting young kids to involve is, is, is a constant struggle, especially now with all the distractions you have with the TikTok and the, the face grams and, and, and video games. And, and it's so much competing for their time. Uh, that's arguably easier to do than to try to pull a model together and glue it and, and, do the work to construct something. Uh, oh. It's something that I don't know if there's an easy answer for. Uh, let me ask another question. Uh, when I was doing it, you never, ever saw a woman or a girl uh, involved in it in any way. Uh, is that still true today? Uh, not exactly. It's still very much a man's uh, sport, so to speak. But there are women. There's what do you guys think? Five percent, maybe. Ten uh, yeah, I wouldn't hazard a guess at that. But I would think the primary difference is that it's now an issue of choice. Where I imagine yeah. any women years ago would have been run off. Now it's just a matter of attracting women to the hobbies, and they would be welcomed. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they'd be encouraged to join. And I've seen a few females. Some have reached competition level. Uh, at the plastic model show, there's usually 
uh, several women that have participated. The RC as well. Every once in a while, you'll see some or wives get involved. Well, I, want uh, to, but, I want to do a shout out to Evelyn Accurso. You know, Tony's gotten her involved, sure. and and now she's in Embry Riddle. You know, it just that's that's a good story right there. Yeah, uh, uh, Professor, there's a friend of the show. Uh, and this gentleman had a daughter that's been involved in model buildings and she was, I guess, since she could walk basically, uh, and that, she, probably. And she was, she's, she was very well known in the community. She flew the models. She, she posed with them. She was some of the companies used her pictures to help advertise her models. Met Chuck and, Yeager. Yeah. Met Chuck Yeager. Um, and she really loves it. And now she's an engineering student at Emory Riddle as a college student studying okay. engineering. Yeah. Well, I I wonder uh, I wonder if there aren't some ways that could be encouraged. I uh, I do remember something uh, in my family. The person with the mechanical skill was my mother. She had astonishing mechanical skill. Uh, it manifested itself in her. Uh, her ability to deal with a complex sewing machine, uh, her ability to produce remarkable uh, uh, crocheting and uh, and things of that sort, just it, it it amazed me always the mechanical ability that I was seeing in her. That my father, who had been a flyer in World War One, for heaven's sake, uh, didn't have. Interesting. Yeah, I, yeah. It's I, not long ago I read a book about the wasps in World War II, the women air service pilots, and from what I garnered from that book, there was a lot of hesitation when that program started whether or not women had the me mechanical and physical aptitude to fly. But by the time they got going, these women were flying everything in the inventory. Well, the, their accident yeah. rate was significantly lower than the men. So yeah, I would. I don't oh. think there's any biological distinction there in any sort of mechanical aptitude or interest. Oh yeah, well the attitudes of the of the thirties <laughs> were discriminatory in so many dimensions. Oh my God. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I actually met once some years ago uh, at a, a different career and involved me going to uh, people's houses, and I met a nice old lady, and. Uh, Are I you think selling I saw vacuum it. cleaners? No, no. I was installing burglar alarms, of all things. <laughs> <Okay>. Yes. <laughs> my, you know, I was a starving college student or pre-college student. And uh, I think I'd seen an airplane or something on her wall. And the lady had said that during during World War II, she had tried out to become a wasp, as, as Terry was saying, to fly aircraft. And she said she had to stop because her parents forbade her from doing that. They did not want her flying aircraft. And it sounded like such a heartbreaking story that she, she really wanted to fly. And the the Moors or the, or the culture at the time basically looked, frowned upon women doing such things. And it was, it was so sad. Oh, yeah. Well, <laughs> God, yeah. I mean, I was there. I saw it. <laughs> and my goodness, they wore pants when they flew. Scandalous. <laughs> the, uh, the, uh, uh, the women British uh, Ferry Command uh, during World War II, uh, these women kind of looked down their noses at the Spitfire pilots because uh, they were 
flying. Spitfires one day, hurricanes the next, bombers the next, uh, uh, just just one plane after another. And sometimes they would just take an, a half hour before they got in the thing uh, to fly it for the first time. And uh, uh, they were saying, uh, you know, what are what are these pilots? They're one trick ponies. <laughs> yeah. And if I recall, the Russians actually had women in frontline combat. I think they were called oh, the uh, the night witches. That's yes. it. Yes, the night witches. Yes. Just a minute. Just a minute. I'll give you another engines episode. Just a oh. second. Night witches. <laughs> Somebody's. I wonder if they've made a movie about them. It'd be interesting to see if the Russians did or something. Uh, Twenty. 896. Nadezhda Popova. It's 2896. It's about the night witches. Oh, great. I didn't know about that one. I'll have to look it up. That yeah. Sounds great. Well, anyway, go ahead. Uh, well, let me raise a topic, another topic. This is uh, going in a different direction. Uh, I see a certain amount of talk among the serious model builders of today about replicating real airplanes. And I would contend that you cannot do that in flight, in flight. And I would contend that you cannot do that. Uh, do you wish to uh, challenge me? Uh, how do you mean? Uh, no model airplane is going to look like the real airplane in flight. Just in terms of the scale, speed, and the way right. it reacts? Okay. Yeah, you're not going to replicate the Reynolds number of the flight unless you you have the thing going at speeds that are supersonic, and then you'll violate Mach uh, number similarity. And there's Froude number similarity, if you know what I'm talking about. Uh, uh, you simply cannot replicate. In fact, uh, one of the great pioneers of aircraft, Cayley, you know the name of Cayley? He was a Brit that uh, starting in 1799 started writing about the theory of flight and actually built a glider back then. Uh, but Cayley said, look, if you're going to uh, conceive of an airplane that flies, you shouldn't be looking at birds. You should be looking at fish because oh. fish, fish are, are in a situation which is more uh, realistic for their size. Interesting. And, uh, you know, he's right. You know, airplanes, an airplane and the bird look very, very different in flight. Uh, and it's a size uh, consideration. That's true. Uh, so so both... I, I've never seen a model airplane in flight, uh, even these modern new ones, that look like a real airplane flying. I, I think I've seen something that comes very close. Uh, in Germany, there's a popular modeler or a group of modelers that build extremely lightweight aircraft uh, some look like they, I don't know if they're filled with helium. I think they're just very lightweight. And they fly them indoors at very slow speeds. And these 
for all practical purposes, do look very much like the real thing as far as um, apparent speed and uh, the way they maneuver through the air. But if you look at the Reynolds number, that's going the wrong direction. Correct. Yeah, the, very, <laughs> the Reynolds number is much lower. Uh, but they're able to do it. it it's uh, If you ever see a video of it, it's, it's uncanny how slow and majestic these models fly. Hmm. I'll have to look at that. In fact, when you're when we're off here, why don't you send me a link if you can? Like uh, oh, there's right some now? out there. What? No, after we're done. Oh, no. after we're done. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'll send you a link. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you you reminded me uh, a friend of mine who is an aerospace engineer, and when he was still a student, he was working on his master's, and he was attempting to develop uh, some sort of a relational algorithm between the models and full-scale aircraft. Oh, so, interesting. So, yes, what he was doing was he was going to take a well-known aircraft. I think it was a Cessna 172 or 182. And something that had all kinds of data already known for it, the flight performance and Reynolds numbers, that kind of stuff. And then he was going to build a quarter-scale model of the same exact aircraft with all the same proportions and test fly that or stick it in a wind tunnel. And then he would, he could cross reference to two performances to see how scaling worked and how you could apply it in reverse. If you design a model aircraft of an experimental aircraft, how would the real one fly? And you could sort of, um, if I, uh, interpolate. If I, if I calculate correctly, uh, if the model were big enough, quarter size, say something like that, if it were big enough, and if the real airplane flew slow enough, uh, then you could probably jack the Reynolds number up to the point that it would be similar. Well, yeah, there are a lot of large-scale Piper Cubs out there that I would say, with the right pilot on the sticks, can be flown very scale-like. How fast? Uh, I, I wouldn't know, but it sure looks... Accurate when it comes speed, down for a landing. Speed up to a couple hundred miles an hour? No. Oh, no, no, no. No, the speeds would be very slow, 30, yeah. 40 miles an hour. Yeah, which is much slower. That's, but that's, that's, the oh. visual impact is one of accuracy that you're watching a larger scale cub. Hmm. At least in my brain. Yeah, hmm. you could actually fool people. If you had someone with a third scale cub flying it, the speed relative to its size, you could have people on the ground thinking, oh, look, it's a, there's a full-scale cub. Yeah, you know, depending on what you what it's doing. Uh, yeah, that has that has happened where a model airplane landed or crashed and some, some bystander would call the police and says, hey, I saw an airplane crash. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, I'm sure that, yeah. Uh, but I do agree that generally speaking, you're right. The The speeds at which models fly does not give the illusion of it being a real airplane. You definitely have to switch your mind into believing that. Just out of curiosity, what's the maximum speed you've seen anyone fly radio control? Well, the AMA limits us to 200 miles an hour, um, I think at normal fields. But the record is currently what five hundred and fifty miles an hour, something oh, like that. Really? That and that's yes. for a glider, a glider uh, doing dynamic soaring. What? 
<laughs> That's a yes. whole other topic we could spend an episode on. But yes, dynamic soaring, uh, ridgely free energy. Uh, beats me. I don't see how that works. The but, closest thing to perpetual motion that I can think of. Well, we can show you yeah. a video, but if you blink, you missed it. Okay. <laughs> Is it diving? Um, yeah, I guess the way you guys try to correct me if I get anything wrong here, but you're aware of slope gliding where you have a wind coming up against a, a cliff or a, a hill. Okay. And then on the back side of that hill, there's going to be a low pressure area where on the front side is a high pressure area. And the way you navigate between the two, you're exchanging energy and you can gain speed with each loop wait, around. Wait, wait and, a minute. You, are you talking about a speed with respect to the ground or a speed with respect to the surrounding air? I would guess it's the 500. Well, it's airspeed. Well, well, the 500 was measured from a static position on the ground, but uh, the wind coming up the slope was probably 20 or 30, or maybe oh. even 50, but still, well, okay, it, there's yeah. a big delta there. Okay, got it. All right, I'd be interested in seeing that too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wish I could could explain the physics better, but it's it's unnatural. It it is a crazy thing to see happen. Yeah, it's almost like magic. When you first hear it described, you're like, that's that doesn't sound right. That sounds like perpetual motion, but it works. There's video. And I would love to know how many G's those airplanes are pulling as they do have, that. Have humans done something like that in uh, in uh, uh, in a glider? I'm not aware. And from what I've seen in the models, no human could withstand those sorts of forces that this airplane is putting itself through. You'd be jelly against the floorboard. Really? Okay. <laughs> oh my. Places we go with this. Right. <laughs> uh, okay. What else? Well, you mentioned you've been that... Kind of... Okay. Oh, well, if Lee has a question, I'm going to let him go, but I've got one in my back pocket. Question or a comment? No, take it out, Terry. Go. Well, you mentioned uh, graduate school and then an engineering career. Can you tell us a little about your engineering experience? Yeah. I. Uh, uh, okay. I'll give you a sort of short biography. Uh, graduated from college, engineering degree, Oregon State in 51. Went to work for Boeing. Boeing airplane. I thought, oh, God, I'm going to get to design airplanes. Whoopee. Well, acres of drawing boards. I was working on the pneumatic system for the B-52 bomber. Uh, and by the way, that was a B-52A, and the pneumatic system was a kludge, and it never worked. Uh, they went back to uh, a regular... Uh, uh, what the pneumatic system did was to bleed secondary air from the compressor and use it to run power packs through the airplane instead of uh, electric uh, motors, which, uh, you know, was screwy. Uh, they went back to an electrical system on the 52B and the subsequent ones. Anyway, uh, I got out of that and I went to teach uh, Boeing drafting and procedure, and that I liked a lot better. Uh, did that for... Uh, a year. And then I went back to graduate school at Washington University of Washington and did a master's degree, finished it just in time to get drafted into the Army. And the Army put me to work at Fort Monmouth working on 
research on the early semiconductor materials. This was before we had uh, 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 semiconductor circuitry of any uh, importance. And it was, you know, very early in the game. And we were still uh, sitting around the barracks talking about a future of 200 mile an hour highways and uh, uh, helicopter in every garage. Uh, we did not see the future coming. We didn't know that it was under our fingers rather than in our imaginations. Uh, anyway, uh, I got out of the Army. I spent a year teaching at the University of Washington as uh, an instructor after that. And uh, uh, then I worked for Pacific Car and Foundry that summer uh, designing tractor attachments, and that was very fun. And then I went off to Berkeley as an instructor, and I taught while I worked out a PhD, then went to work at Washington State University as uh, an associate professor. Uh, taught there for six years and got myself established as a researcher doing uh, uh, thermal thermofluids research, and so I've got a long string of papers and books and stuff on that. And uh, then I moved to the University of Kentucky, where I taught for 13 years, and then the University of Houston hired me, and I've been here ever since, doing, uh, mostly doing research in the thermal uh, fluids area. But then I got interested in history, and I began the radio program in uh, in 1988, and we've been doing that ever since, and that has gradually uh, become the major enterprise, that and writing books on history. So that's my uh, vitae and brief. That's quite a variety. Yeah, yeah. But then, you know, I've been alive a long time. <laughs> I'm... Uh, uh, I'm in my 92nd year at this point, so, you know, uh, a lot goes on. Wow, your brain is, uh, <laughs> you are just, you don't sound like it. You're just so witty and you're so exact. I I just wish I had half your capacity. <laughs> I wish I had half my capacity. <laughs> <laughs> Old and forgetful and, yeah, right. <laughs> Anyway, uh, but then uh, thermal fluids research has been my main uh, occupation during during my lifetime, it, the largest single occupation, with uh, history being the second. And history, of course, is skewed in the direction of airplanes very strongly. Explain what thermal fluids research would entail. Well, uh, it began, I was working on uh, issues of... Uh, well, nuclear reactors are a device that will pour out a huge amount of power in a very small space. So you have to have means for removing energy at a very, very high heat fluxes. So I've uh, done a great deal of my work on high heat flux uh, heat transfer, uh, mostly done with uh, systems like uh, boiling and condensation. And uh, so that's been uh, my main occupation. Uh, probably 
my largest single occupation, but then I've worked on other things like uh, uh, rainfall runoff and, uh, oh, uh, let's see, where should I go? <laughs> uh, I got to stop and think of all the various uh, uh, things that I've gotten my nose into. Uh, uh, as again, you know, I'd, I'd have to stop and thumb through and recite a lot of stuff, but um, uh, heat transfer has been the main thing. In fact, if I give you another uh, website, if you're interested in a free uh, heat transfer textbook that has uh, appeared in every country in the world, uh, here is your URL. A-H-T-T dot M-I-T dot E-D-U. A-H-T-T dot M-I-T dot E-D-U. And that will get you to a free copy of the book, which you can look at. And it, uh, it actually gives you an idea of the sort of stuff that I'm interested in. Now, you mentioned that in the scope of nuclear power. Do you think that sort of stuff is scalable down to what we do to remove heat from an electric motor on the front of an RC model or anything like that? That question is very interesting. Uh, when I first started out, people were hoping that they would one day have nuclear-powered airplanes and nuclear-powered cars. Uh, that has turned out not to be the case. It's been much too complicated, although we do have nuclear-powered ships and have had them for many, many decades. Uh, but uh, today, there are startup companies that uh, uh, are now uh, planning to build small uh, portable nuclear reactors, you know, like... Uh, uh, a hundred uh, megawatt uh, or maybe one megawatt units, one megawatt units. I'm sorry, I'm confusing with uh, with uh, computer storage. I got to get my wires straight here. Uh, order of magnitude, one megawatt, uh, one megawatt units. Uh, in fact, my grandson, who is finishing his PhD at MIT in uh, material science, is actually talking to one of those companies about uh, perhaps taking a job when he finishes this spring. So I think the, the possibility of miniaturizing nuclear power is something that people are finally getting back to. And if you're interested in a historical wrinkle on this, all technologies, uh, now I shouldn't say all, but many, many technologies start out huge and then miniaturize. An example, of course, is the computer, where people were expecting all computation to be done from a handful of huge central computers linked by, uh, uh, the people operated by telephone from a distance. Uh, the, uh, the movement toward miniaturization finally occurred in the early 80s, when people finally developed the PC, and the thing that made it work was uh, software. Software was something that didn't really exist to any extent before then. 
and then suddenly miniaturization has gone all the way down to the cell phone and and uh, medical implants and all sorts of things uh, with enormous computational power. Another example is the electric motor. Uh, when the first electric motors were built, uh, they replaced the central steam engine that drove a number of belts in a factory. And that continued for about 20 years before somebody said, wait a minute, why are we doing this? We can, uh, uh, we can simply distribute the, uh, the energy to individual, electric energy to individual engines at each workplace. And the modern factory suddenly underwent a huge revolution, but that was that was 20 years after the first uh, electric motors were in place. Finally, the miniaturization process went to work, and so you'll find that in many technologies we lingered with the large central unit too long. Now maybe, uh, as you suggest. Uh, Nuclear power will begin the miniaturization process. I hope it does. Wow. Do you think um, safety is going to be a factor there? Yeah, sure. Uh, okay. Safety. By the way, all technology has revenge effects. Uh, the automobile is unsafe. Right? Sure. Yeah, uh, what, 30,000 people die a year in automobile accidents? Yeah, yeah, but it's it's one that we uh, we turn a blind eye to. Just We're willing to accept that for the convenience. Yeah, we turned a blind eye to uh, half a million deaths a year by uh, uh, smoking tobacco uh, for a long time. Then finally we caught on and did something about it. But in the case of nuclear power, the fear precedes the danger. We've had two serious nuclear accidents in all the history of nuclear power. Chernobyl and Fukushima. Two. And if you compare the damage they've done to the damage done by uh, uh, fossil fuel burning, there's just no comparison. But one is acceptable, the other is not. We were all terribly afraid of the atom bomb after World War II. And that fear has protected us from the dropping of a second bomb. I'll give it that. Hmm, that's interesting. It makes me wonder if this is just a marketing issue. Had they not called the atom bomb, the atomic bomb, called it something else, and then nuclear power was not associated with that, if it had been more widely accepted? Oh, I'm, I'm certain. Uh, I worked for the Electric Power Research Institute for a couple of summers, and uh, uh, this was in the mid-1970s. And in 76, I was called upon to do a technical audit of the Nuclear Safety Division. And so I audited all of their projects and looked at what they were doing. It was called the Nuclear Safety and Analysis Division. Well, it turns out that almost 100% of those projects were devoted toward satisfying federal regulations, and virtually none of it was focused on creating better safety, better, safer 
reactors. It was all about meeting regulations. And uh, the nuclear industry killed itself by by focusing only on uh, self-protection and not on uh, new devices. Yeah, so it's like a foresight. Yeah. So, uh, and the nuclear uh, uh, energy in the United States uh, pretty well began dying in the early 80s, and it hasn't recovered since, although the reactors we built then are still pumping out, what, 20% of our energy production. And we sort of turn a blind eye to that fact. Hmm, that's very interesting. And I, I just have to assume that sooner or later that we're going to have to make some big decisions on which direction we're going to go as a nation with that. Yeah. It doesn't seem as if renewables are quite ready to take over where fossil fuels and nuclear yeah, that's even right. a short. That's right. And uh, nuclear has the capacity to, to uh, do an awful lot of good in the near future. Now, again, nuclear fuel is not renewable, uh, but it doesn't look like we're going to run out of supplies in any, <laughs> in any foreseeable future. Of course, it didn't look like we were going to run out of, uh, of uh, fossil fuels. But now it's pretty clear that uh, uh, we're good for maybe a, another century uh, consuming at the rate we do. Mm -hmm. right. Well, that yeah, gives us something to think about. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, that's uh, nuclear power was something that I was involved with for a long time and haven't been for many, many years now. <laughs> yeah. Wow, fascinating. Uh, Lee, you've been quiet. You got anything on your mind? Like to ask a good professor? Just wondering if I can get that nuclear power system ready for my P-38. <laughs> <laughs> or your Suburban. <laughs> or my Suburban, exactly. Which building a P-38? Uh, yeah, I just acquired a very large, giant-scale P-38 Lightning. That you, will yeah. not look scale-like. <laughs> well, it'll... It's speed-wise. <laughs> speed-wise, exactly. What, yeah. What's the, uh, what's the, uh, the wingspan? Hundred inches. Hundred inches. Okay. Okay. Well, it isn't all that big then. It's. Uh, <laughs> I mean, compared to some of the stuff I've seen out there. Was, it's well. I'll say it's not the biggest plane I have because I have planes that have larger wingspan because they're gliders. But this will be the largest aircraft, like uh, warbird aircraft, that I have. Okay. The biggest one I ever built was a seven-foot wingspan, and that was a glider. Uh, but uh, yeah, but a P-38, that was a, a very interesting airplane in so many regards. It uh, uh, never quite got into the favored status of the P-51 and the uh, P-47, but uh, it was sort of number three in people's uh, evaluation. Did you know that Lindbergh uh, actually test flew P-38s in combat? Yeah, he wasn't he's... supposed to. What? <laughs> I heard he did that against orders. Yeah, yeah, he did against orders, but, uh, yeah. Yeah, if I remember correctly, he developed the 
uh, how to fly them for longer ranges. Yeah, he was with the pitch and mixture settings. Yeah, he did. Uh, yeah, what exactly? You guys can probably tell me. I, I forget at this point. Uh, but there, boy, there was a funny character. I uh, I've developed uh, some something of a friendship with his daughter, uh, who uh, uh, has has written uh, several books. Uh, have any of you heard of Reeve Lindbergh? No, I didn't know he had another daughter after the. Unfortunately, oh, yes. it was yes. Se- several kids. One of them was very active in flight, and he just died, a son. Uh, the first child and I were born about two and a half months apart. And so when the kidnapping occurred, my parents just got tense as could be. Because uh, it was also in Minnesota. I was in Minnesota, and Lindbergh was a Minnesotan. So, uh, uh, but, but he, uh, lived a very weird life, three marriages in three different places, three different sets of children. You know about that? Oh, wasn't one in Europe? Uh, I think, I think two were German. Yeah. That's and right. of course the public one was. It says uh, here he had 13 children. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And, uh. Reeve was the last daughter of his uh, marriage to Anne Morrow. Interesting. Yeah. And she she wrote a book about... Uh, She's written one called Under a Wing about growing up with Papa. <laughs> and uh, she's uh, written a number of other things as well. And she's also very kindly blurbed one of my books, which I'm grateful to her for. She lives in... Uh, Upstate Connecticut, uh, upstate Vermont. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, from what I understand, his level of stardom during his time would be more than any pop star we could imagine today. I oh, don't yeah. think he could go anywhere without being mobbed. Yeah, yeah. And it was it was terrible because, you know, he was very private. Right. And, uh, it, uh, it was a mess. And, of course, he was also... Uh, really was in bed with the Nazis uh, in a very bad way. And he was uh, anti-Semite in his early talks. And, you know, he did all sorts of bad things. Uh, and then sort of redeemed himself in two ways. First, during the war, uh, by his help of the Air Force, who would not uh, take him into the military but did uh, put him to work. And then uh, the work that he did in environmental causes afterward, he and his wife, Anne Morrow, both did some, you know, very, very good stuff. So a very complicated character. Yeah, for sure. I like to think that people grow. So maybe he left the worst parts of him behind in his youth. Yeah, we hope, we hope. All right. Well, Lee, I assume your brother gave you a list of questions to ask. Is that the case? <laughs> uh, no, but uh, Professor, my brother is a huge fan of yours. He listens to your show. Uh, oh. He listens to NPR a lot. And when I told him you were going to be in the show, he's like, really? 
<laughs> so really he goes and i guess he didn't know fits uh maybe he just never put the two together but maybe he just listened to fits and just didn't uh, put two and two together so but i just wanted to uh, give a shout out for my brother to you he really enjoys it so uh thank you for entertaining my brother he's, he's my brother's name is glenn glenn Bray. okay yeah yeah well, so. hi glenn then <laughs> He'll appreciate that. I just gave him his Christmas present this year. <laughs> He's swooning. <laughs> well, I have to admit that I'm not familiar with the show. So can you give me the, the elevator pitch on what it's about? It's, uh, it's uh, three and a half minutes on uh, invention and creativity. Now, it begins, I suppose, with engineering but it branches out into all sorts of other things music poetry uh, uh, various cultural uh, areas all kinds of history and uh, we try not to do news in other words people write me and say i've got this wonderful new invention will you talk about it and i say no because uh, uh, we don't want to get into the uh, commercialization uh, aspect of things, anything like that. Uh, but uh, it's uh, the 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 binding tissue of the whole thing is invention and creativity. And uh, so we talk about old inventors and uh, and we talk about uh, old creative people of all kinds. And uh, uh, of course, my own interest in airplanes. If you let's just see uh, while you're on there, I'll go to the thing and I will type in airplane and see how many hits I get. Okay, I went into the search routine, 518 results. So, wow. <laughs> I, think, I guess you like yeah. airplanes. <laughs> so, you know, there's a lot on airplanes. Uh, and uh, uh, anyway, uh, the, uh, the website for it is uh, simple if you have a pencil. It's uh, uh, slash engines uh, engines. Yeah, we'll <laughs> post a link to that. <clears throat> Pardon? Yeah, we'll post a link to that on our, uh, that was, our social media. All the episodes we've ever done. And there's a search routine where you can type in uh, anything. Give me an airplane term of some sort. Dihedral. Stall. Dihedral. <laughs> uh, three results. Nice. <laughs> okay. Give me another one just for the fun of it. Stall. Stall. Well, of course, that'll get other... Other things, 52 results. Uh, uh, the first one is whale aerodynamics. And then there's one on... <laughs> Wait, what? Is it the aerodynamics of a, <laughs> a, a sperm whale? That's, that's like some of my airplanes. No, that's <laughs> just big, fat, ugly things. Not of, not of a sperm whale, but of a humpback. Okay. Uh, you, you know those funny uh, bumps on the uh, leading edge of a humpback fin you've seen? Sure. Oh, yeah. Okay, well, it turns out that they actually achieve a vortex-reducing, uh, 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 airfoil-lift-improving uh, behavior in the part of fluid flow. 
So they, they serve a very real function. Is that akin to the dimples on a golf ball? Uh, not quite. Akin, I guess I would say yes. Yes, kin, but not, uh, not quite because this is two-dimensional and that's three-dimensional. But no, yeah, I guess, uh, yeah, it is kin because what you're doing is, is uh, delaying separation in both cases. Yeah, yeah. So it's definitely kin, yeah. Huh, oh. that's very interesting. And everybody listening can learn all about that if you go to that link he just said. And boy, I tell you, I'm already pulling them up and going, man, I've missed a whole bunch. But I will say I, I flipped through a couple the other day and I did listen to your Leap Second uh, episode just driving. And that is that was so cool. I know it's not aviation related, but there are some really interesting uh, articles in there. And you're right. They're not necessarily news and not just about engineering, but they're just really good trivia. And I say trivia, but I meant... Just little things about science, and that leap second was excellent. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I'm not going to bristle at that. <laughs> uh, yeah. But I'd, I'd be amiss to not mention one from Fitz. Uh, I'm going to let everybody know this run right now. Pull up episode 3029 when you're doing that search, and Fitz has one called Model Citizen. And it's, uh, it's really good, Fitz. I like how you talk about your you know getting started in plastic modeling. Well, oh, thanks. Model citizen. Yeah, right. Okay, good. This was done a couple of years ago, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah. that's one of my older ones. Okay. Well, we're you know, I got to get you back in the saddle again. We're uh, 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 by the way, I'll just mention that our uh, the fellow that does the recording up at the station has just gone through some uh, cancer surgery. And uh, it's uh, recoverable. Fortunately, it's it's a curable one. But he's been uh, he's been pretty ill for for a couple of months, and I'm very very happy to see him getting out of this finally. And uh, I hope that between his recovery and our recovery from the COVID, we're going to uh, uh, suddenly get a spate of new episodes here. I can't wait to see them. Oh, I didn't know that about him. Uh, yeah, uh, it's good to hear he's recovering. I yeah. like working with him. Yeah, he's a he's a good guy. Yeah, send him our best wishes for quick recovery and back in the saddle. Back in the saddle, right? Uh, okay. Anything else you can think of? Because uh, I've uh, I'm not uh, I'm not thinking of anything that I especially wanted to bring up. Uh, I I will say this. I am stunned by the beauty of the airplanes I see you guys bringing out to model airports. It's uh, it's really astonishing. And if I'd seen seen one of these uh, uh, fly uh, flying sessions back when I was uh, 12 years old, I would have swallowed my teeth. I would have not believed it. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, that I'm should gonna... be. Go ahead, Lee. I'm going to offer this to you right now. I would love to invite you to tag along with me and Fitz to an event here in Houston. I don't know which one yet Fitz, but let's uh, let's give them the address and tell them where to show up and let's show them what the the Houston builders have available. And and I'd say not just Houston, but I'm sure people traveling from Louisiana and maybe Oklahoma would come down too for some of the larger uh, Big Bird events. I can bring my camera. Absolutely. I'm a fellow photographer, so I, I approve that message. Okay. okay. 
Yeah, sounds a great idea, Lee. I'm sure it'll be uh, coming up in the spring or something. There'll be a very nice event in the Houston area we can go to. You can see quite a few of the very fine aircraft and pilots uh, in the area. Okay, I'm on. All right. Well, an interesting thing, you bring that up and talking about the beauty of the models. And then a few minutes ago, you were talking about how the topics on the show often delve into poetry and artistry and things like that. So that's a common thread that I find with people who are interested in engineering. The interests in music and art and other ventures like that are never far away. And that's it seems true. like model airplanes in particular are an avenue where you can explore both. Yeah, I, and I certainly see that in my own department. Any number of people are involved in music in some way. A uh, couple involved in fine furniture building, if you can imagine. Uh, and uh, uh, one was interested in, uh, in Chinese art. And uh, it just just goes on and on. It's very much shot through engineering, the the uh, uh, looking for beauty. And of course, you can't be an engineer if you're going to build an ugly machine. <laughs> That's right. They'll run you right out of there. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> I think most people would be amazed to realize the number of astronauts that are also musicians. <laughs> yeah. so there's some sort of the connection there at our atomic level that, that binds all these things together. Yeah. Well, <laughs> both my wife and her sister were trained musicians who married engineers. <laughs> <laughs> I rest my case. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yes, engineers marry either artists or teachers. Yeah. Well, engineers or builders, let us not, uh, let us not get hung up on the degree here. Oh, sure. Yeah. And uh, Ray, you're off in New York, right? No, you've got them swapped. This is Terry oh. and I'm in Buffalo. Lee is oh, I, in Houston. Terry is in where? Buffalo. Buffalo. Oh, you're freezing your tush off. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Um, it's quite cozy in my basement, but yeah, outside there's uh, plenty of snow to go around. So, yes. And... Uh, for anybody down there in the Houston area who uh, thinks that this is a wasteland of uh, snow and ice and all those things, that's what I used to think until I moved here. It's quite livable and it's a lovely place. And come August, this is the better place to be for in, sure. In fact, it, it was my privilege to walk, watch the second coldest football game ever played just the other day. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And I tuned in, not because I was rooting for either team, but because I wanted to see people playing in that temperature. <laughs> right. And it seems to me the football was slipping out of people's hands and and uh, giving a certain amount of trouble. Yeah, I can imagine that that football is about as hard as a bowling ball in that yeah. temperature. And I don't want to catch it. I know the question I failed to ask. Do any of you model builders build World War one aircraft it's oh yes i have several i've got a dh2 and a, and a moraine saulnier okay I, I have seen uh what do you call the one way ein ein uh oh eindecker eindecker yeah, yeah. i think I've seen eindecker models yeah i think terry had one at one point didn't you and i do 
it's not finished, but I have a hundred inch wingspan Eindecker, which is actually a little bit of a paradox because it's a World War One airplane, but it uses laser cut components and carbon fiber <laughs> spars and, and probably an electric power plant when I'm done. Has anyone ever built a Fokker D7? Oh, oh. lots. Yeah, lots. It was pretty That's, popular. Okay, let me tell you uh, what I'm up to right now. thing that I was going to, let me refer you to episode number uh, uh, 1144 about determining the meaning of U10 on the side of an airplane. It turns out that after I was at the Smithsonian that summer, trying to figure out why that airplane had a U10, uh, a U10 on its side, a historian came to work at the Smithsonian, and he took up the case of the Fokker, and then he went off to Sweden to, to run planetariums. But meanwhile, he kept a, the manuscript of a book he'd started writing about the pilot. Now he's finishing that book, and he wants me to do the foreword, and I've been swapping emails with him regularly, uh, because he and I are really the two people that got into this airplane, which now resides at the Smithsonian Institution. And uh, uh, so I've been spending the last uh, month or so swapping emails every day with him about this airplane and its history and the history of the pilot. And it is absolutely fascinating, all the stuff that happened. I think the the episode will show you the sketch of what went on. He accidentally landed the airplane on a forward American air base because he had engine trouble. And it was just a little tiny air base that none of the planes showed there in the hangars. And so he didn't know it was an allied base. And the uh, three pilots there ran out and captured him. And uh, this was very near the end of the war. It turns out that the uh, American intelligence officer who debriefed him was uh, somebody that became a close friend of his family, godparents to his children. (laughs) I mean, the whole (laughs) thing is just an insane story. Well, real life stranger than fiction. Yeah, stranger than fiction. And I'm having a good time now swapping emails with this guy who has done enormous detail. And the book will be out shortly. And uh, I would love to see somebody build a nice detailed model of this uh, U-10 Fokker D-7. Yeah, there's several popular kits for the d7 in various sizes so there are a lot of them out there probably several that are in work right now with people looking for an interesting color scheme to use so Uh, we'll we'll have to put that challenge out there oh do oh yeah connect to them if you can oh i'd love that so Uh, is the color scheme on that example at the smithsonian true to that airframe oh scrupulously so scrupulously so Interesting. Uh, yeah. And uh, the uh, the lozenge pattern had been painted out on most of the airplane and replaced with uh, the U-10, which was his personal thing. It turns out that the U-10 
uh, he served with the 10 Ulans as a cavalry officer on the Russian front and then was wounded that destroyed his horseback riding, but uh, didn't uh, stop him from flying airplanes. So he then took up the flying service. And uh, so, yeah, th but there's the, uh, you're probably uh, aware of the Cross and Cockade group, are you? Oh, I can't say that I am. And not by uh, that name. Well, they're, they're a group that uh, does World War I airplane history, and it's a big group. And oh, they spend all kinds of times just laboring over the finest detail of heraldry, airplane paint. <laughs> and hmm. You can see the sort of stuff they're into. That's very interesting because one of the things that's often talked about in competitions for scale models of RC airplanes is you're supposed to provide photo documentation of the color scheme that you've chosen to replicate. But when it comes to World War I models, you're probably not going to find an accurate replication of those colors through photographs. So a lot of it is guesswork. And oh. So for the same airplane, you might have different shades or even different colors. Well, you go crossing cockade, you find a lot of photographs. I mean, a lot of these airplanes were photographed. Uh, and, uh, of course, uh, the one airplane will change from one pilot to the next. It's, mm -hmm. uh, uh, and the question is, uh, once you choose, a, you know, if you choose a pilot first and then go looking for the paint, that's going to be difficult. But if you find a paint scheme you like and then, well, you see what I mean. Right. And I think that's going to be my strategy when I finally build my Eindecker, something unique and colorful and then i'll yeah find oh, out you know the one you should go after is the one that uh anthony fokker flew when he uh he built his interrupter mechanism and we have photographs of that oh no no wait a minute wait a minute we have photographs i have photographs of the one that uh that uh this pilot heinz van Belieu marconet flew he flew an eindecker first Okay. And I have photographs of him next to that Decker. They are now in the hands of this author, uh, Tom Cochran, in Sweden, but I'm sure he'd share them. Uh, so I can, uh, when we're offline, you know, email me and, and I can connect you with him if you're interested. Okay, sure. Yeah, I'll follow up with that. Yeah. Thank uh, you. Yeah. And it's the same pilot that I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. He flew a variety of airplanes. Uh, it's interesting. I know I mentioned a lot of people build uh, DR1s, uh, triplanes, mm -hmm. because uh, they are so immortalized, even though that was a minor airplane in the whole uh, scheme of things. Sure. Uh, even in Richthofen's career. Yeah, von Richthofen uh, made only about 17 of his kills or so in one and then he was finally killed flying one so uh yeah i think he flew mostly albatrosses yes correct yeah yeah he flew i think three different airplanes and the albatross mainly yeah. uh but uh yeah there's a whole uh in fact you know there's a whole wedding 
between you and crossing Caucade that ought to take place. That's interesting. Yeah, I wonder if they're used as a resource by scale modelers. Oh, I'm sure they must be. They're just too visible. Okay. Yeah, I'll definitely check out that website. Yeah. And uh, I'll uh, I'll check with uh, Tom Callan. And uh, uh, see, what happened was I gave all of my Smithsonian files to the University of Houston Special Collections. And he went to them, and they copied everything for him in great detail, doing nice copies of all my photographs that I'd given them. Mm-hmm. So uh, I actually visited the pilot's son in Munich and talked to him, and he, he gave me a bunch of photos. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> it's, I'm always amazed by just how small this world can be. Oh, yes. <laughs> Yeah, but uh, yeah, uh, World War One is has been interesting to me. As I say, my father flew. He didn't get into combat, but he flew with uh, America's first uh, night pursuit squadron and uh, the 185th night pursuit. He flew Newports, Spads, Sopwith Camel was his wow. main wow. air. Well, flying a camel at night, that's probably yeah, more dangerous say. than the enemy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, he had his crack out. Uh, he <laughs> crashed a couple of planes. <laughs> uh, I, I am here by virtue of the fact that they did not see combat. I'm sure he would have been shot down. <laughs> no. Well, maybe the Germans weren't crazy enough to fly at night. Yep. yep. The insignia was a, a figure of a bat against the moon. Oh, wow. Well, that's pretty neat, actually. Yeah, I like yeah. that. <laughs> yeah, now we're getting into some good color schemes for models. Yeah. Do you have any pictures of your, your father's plane? Picture of the, uh, uh, again, I can email a picture of the, uh, of the insignia because I've got uh, a piece of fabric framed with the insignia. But wow. let's see if you, I'm sure if you just, yeah, just Google 158 night pursuit and you'll get it right there ah there it is wow it's amazing all this information you have at our fingertips oh it just it, it is amazing now that's not a good representation of the insignia i can give you a better one but but oh yeah, i see it yeah i see the insignia it's kind of a pretty creepy looking bat or <laughs> <laughs> yeah, an orangish color my father does not appear in this photograph but uh this was at Rembercourt, which was a big central location. And from there, they they went to smaller airfields. One at Colin Bay La Belle was where my father spent his time. That's amazing history. Yeah, I had no idea about any of this. Anyway, uh, there are certainly many avenues of access to people who are fanatically expert in telling you what paint job to put on the plane. <laughs> All right. Well, um, good to know that resources. It's good to know that resources there, but I'm not sure I want to have that sort of scrutiny once I do paint it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't know what resources you have for painting, but that can't be easy. Yeah. 
You've got to that. practically do your artwork yourself then. Yeah, I, I think so. Yeah, but we got good techniques. You can scan it, trace it, yeah. print it on vinyl, magic of computers. Do you have any contact with the uh, uh, old Rhinebeck aerodrome? Uh, no, I've been there and loved every minute of it. And interestingly, I listened to Fitz, the fighter pilot podcast. Uh, they had yes. an episode, the most recent one, I think, is with the manager of Rhinebeck. And is it? So okay, I saw, it. It. I saw it pop up. I hadn't had a chance to listen to it yet. Yeah, very interesting. Oh, okay. Okay, they've, yes. they've done some remarkable stuff there. And again, they're, they'll be as fanatical as anyone about paint. Uh, they've... Uh, but the beauty of old Rhinebeck is they keep as much stuff flying as they can. Right. And I remember the weird sensation when I went to people who were uh, had a Fokker D7 and, a, and a, a triplane side by side, and we're talking about flying them with the known rotary engine and all that, or the rotary engine and all that. And uh, they... Uh, I had this weird sensation. You know, I talked to my father. Now I was talking to these guys about the feel and the mechanics of flying these things. That it was it was spooky. Yeah. These young kids talking to me like my father. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. One noteworthy part of that podcast was you know, Rhinebeck's had a DR1 for so long now. Their pilots that fly their model um have more time in a dr1 than any world war one pilot ever did <laughs> uh, by the way do modelers have modelers played with uh, rotary engines i'm not aware of any downsized rotaries there are definitely some radials and i wouldn't be surprised if there's a rotary out there but i've never seen it Oh, there's there's another subject and one that I've talked about on the air, the the business between uh, rotary, I'm sorry, between air cooled and liquid cooled engines. Mm -hmm. Now, all my model engines were all uh, air cooled, and right. yeah, all. In fact, do you have any uh, liquid cooled model engines? No, they're still air cooled. Oh, okay, cool. but when you say, oh, okay, radial, though, okay, distributed uh, cylinders, okay, okay. Um, yeah. Radial, immediately, I think air-cooled, but yeah, okay. Because in World War I, uh, the air-cooled engines were all radial, and uh, the, uh, the uh, uh, liquid-cooled ones were all in line. Right. Yeah. And, and it was... Uh, the when you see the two uh, most destructive airplanes in the American stable, namely the P-51 and the P-47, the P-47 was had to be huge in comparison with the uh, P-51. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, some years ago I remember seeing. But, just, uh, but the Navy was all air cooled. Uh, right. Yeah. Yeah. I think for reliability reasons. Hmm? Yeah, you're right. I can't think of any reliability, right? Or durability. Oh, yeah, okay, yeah. yeah. Reliability, yeah. Anyway. Uh, 
Oh, you just reminded me. There was, uh, I remember seeing in a magazine, a gentleman had built a model of a P-39, which, if you recall, has a uh, liquid-cooled engine behind the, the pilot. Yeah. The, the, uh, the P-39, by the way, was the latest and the hottest thing that we kids were looking at at the beginning of World War II. It was the airplane that was really going to do things. And nobody realized what a dog it was. <laughs> yeah. And then we gave them all to the Russians. The Russians <laughs> were able to use them because they were using them largely in low-level flight. And yeah. it, it was more effective in the sort of low-level combat that they were doing. Yeah, it had a big cannon in the nose, too, which was good for shooting German tanks and stuff. Yeah. Uh, the factory where it, they built those is about five miles from where I'm sitting right now. Oh, really? oh wow! Yeah, yeah but but the the thing I wanted to say is um the the modeler wanted a liquid cooled engine in it, so he did his own custom plumbing of a radiator and all the works so that he could run a a glow engine behind the cockpit, but it was all liquid cooled and not typically air cooled. Yeah, I remember reading it. It was like it was fascinating and scary at the same time. Yeah, that's ambitious. Did that work. So yeah, you would have had the, the extension shaft too, which yeah, good luck balancing that thing. Well, the the plumbing on the uh, on the air cooled, uh, pardon me, the plumbing on the liquid cooled World War One airplanes was was something because most of them put the radiator up in the above the pilot's head. And had plumbing going down to the engine below. I mean, it was, it was spooky. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, those planes, I think, were just spooky in general because it was the early days of aviation, and I don't quite sure they knew what they were doing when they built those things. Well, didn't the uh, didn't the uh, the Havilland Moth also have that uh, system of radiator up in the wing? Was that the radiator or just a fuel tank? Oh, it was a fuel tank. Okay, yeah, I think it was a fuel tank. The Tiger Moth oh. stuff. Yeah. Okay, wash my mouth out with soap. My <laughs> now, there was the plane, what is it? It had a Model T engine in it, the... Um, Pete and Pole? Pete and Pole. And it was a version of that that had a radiator right in front of the pilot, so that you had you couldn't see straight. You had to look out the side. And they still fly in that way. Yeah, that, that made no sense. <laughs> What's the name of the airplane? Oh, the Pete and Pole? Okay, there it is. Oh, it's a pretty respectable-looking machine. I expected... A- Okay. Holy Toledo. <laughs> okay. Yeah, it's generally speaking a nice looking aircraft. It's just oh, there's versions it, of it with a giant radiator. A going up the radiator. Okay. Um, going? Oh, yeah, there's a radiator right in front of the... Okay. <laughs> so you, it's sort of a, a two, two indemnities. You've got a big radiator so you can't see out the front, and it's a big air brake. Yeah, yeah, well, it's radiators in general. Yeah, <laughs> but you get a warm breeze back there in the cockpit. <laughs> I have a model of one of these too, by the way, that I have that's half built. The Pete and Pole. Yes, hmm. I got it from uh, unfortunately deceased club member, and he had started working on it. And I, I was actually looking at it the other day. It's like one of these days I got to finish that. How big is it? Uh, it's the. I think it's got like a f- at least a fifty-inch wingspan. 50, 60 inch wingspan. It's one okay. of the larger House of Balsa, I think. Okay, there you go. That'll be fun. Yeah, it'll be pretty neat. Balsa? House of Balsa. Yeah, it's the name of a company. Oh, oh. <laughs> but it is Balsa. It is made out of Balsa wood and some plywood. 
that four channel? Uh, yes. Okay. Yeah, they're kind of a minimalist one. airplane, but they they definitely have a charm. What does four channel mean? Uh, four channel means four functions. So each uh, control surface is oh. a channel. Oh, 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 that's air, uh, radio control term. Okay. Yes, yeah, yes. yeah. So if it's a three channel, you would have throttle, elevator, and rudder, but you would add ailerons for your fourth channel. By the way, if you go online, there are some people who are actually selling old kits that never got built. For a lot of money. Oh. You probably couldn't have given them away five years ago. Now they're worth a lot. Have Have any of you uh, in the earlier times uh, bought and built any of those? Oh, sure. Huh, well, how yeah. old are you talking? Well, I don't know. The time scale. You, you tell me. Well, I would have built things that were contemporary when I was younger. So oh. anything from the 70s through the 90s. No, I'm talking about the planes of the 30s and 40s. Um, I've never built anything that old, but I, I know they're around and they typically store well. So why not? I have a couple of Jetco kits sitting on my shelf behind me. Huh. Are they going to stay on the shelf as relics or are you intending to build them? Oh, I'm going to build them. Okay, good. Are model builders selling the old balsa and glue kits at all? Uh, yes, there's a thriving used market for that kind of stuff. Yes. Used? No, I mean new. Uh, unbuilt kits? Yeah. Yeah, there's definitely a resurgence in popularity. And since COVID times, people are stuck at home. So they're either retaking up building or learning how to build balsa kits. So, uh, yeah, they're hard to come by and you're going to pay for them. What use for glue and dope these days? Neither. Well, the glue would be cyanoacrylates or super glues. Although I guess some people would use aliphatic glues. Um, and then covering is now everyone uses iron-on self-adhesive mylar. Iron-on self-adhesive? Jeez. Yes. Okay. There might be a few purists who still use silk and dope, but most people use the mylar. It's pre-colored. You don't have to paint it. It's... Uh, pretty robust and easy to apply, but that's been around since the eighties. Okay. Well, I've, everything I've ever built in my life <clears throat> has been tissue and, and dope and the tissue, uh, you know, you got to get a good grade. Uh, we use something called silspan. Sure. Uh, you know the term? Oh yes. Mm -hmm. It's paper. Right. Yeah, it's hard to come by, and I'm blessed that I have a huge roll of it because uh, it's it's very expensive now. Oh, really? Well, the way we'd apply it, we would dampen it, and then we would uh, cover the surface, the balsa, uh, the, the wooden uh, surface to which it had to adhere, we'd cover that in, in dope, and you'd spread the damp fluid on the surface, carefully pinned down to avoid warping. Now, is that that technique, is that alien or is that something familiar? I was going to say, it's not alien to us because we we still do that for fun. But as far as modern kits sold today, 
No, I, I don't think people do that. I think it's more nostalgic. Would you I, agree, Terry? Yeah, I would say 99 point something percent of people are using the modern system and some people will still use silk and dope or silk span and dope just for the nostalgia of it. I see. Although there probably are some functional benefits as well. If you put an airplane out in the sun, I don't think the silk is going to relax. Or if it does, not nearly as much as the mylar. Never had that problem. Yeah. Yeah. And but it's it, awfully light. I don't know. You can you can match that lightness. Um, probably not. I'm not sure how the weights compare. Mm. Yeah, probably not, but the modern equipment, especially for rail control, is already lightweight and overpowered, so it's not as much of an issue as back in the free flight days. Well, right. I must say I reacted in shock when I saw uh, Fitz putting an engine on the nose of his glider. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a glider anymore. <laughs> That's what all the cool kids are doing nowadays. Instead of a tow line. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But we still do that. You can still tow. Uh, we've done, Terry and I, are, all three of us actually, we've towed gliders up with another airplane and released uh, or bungee launched it. Or, or a, a car. car. <laughs> yeah, we did RC car <laughs> once. <laughs> uh, Lee had a nice uh, bungee setup we used, uh, was it last year or so? I went to your field and we were uh, using a basically um, it's uh, surgical tubing, elastic tubing that we can just as a Think of a giant rubber band and we slingshot our gliders up into the air with no no motor. Yeah, okay. I think the reality of it is with the traditional gliders, you would have had to have X amount of ballast in the nose just to get the correct center of gravity. But modern electrical power systems, you can incorporate one of these motors without any additional weight. It's you know, yeah. the same or less than you would have been adding as dead ballast anyway. Really? And then... With a folding propeller, there's very little aerodynamic cost as well. I don't, well, I guess I did put ballast in the nose. I guess maybe I did. I'd forgotten doing that. Yeah, and that's the problem I had with the Leprechaun, the big glider you saw, was I actually had initially thought to have a module in the front where I could swap out either dead weight or the power system. But when I built it, I realized I'd need all the weight of the power system anyways to balance it, so I might as well just keep the power system in it and not have just dead weight doing nothing, because I can always shut the motor off in flight remotely anyway. So okay. why not? And the self-launching is very convenient. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hmm. Interesting. One of the first things I asked Fitz when I saw him launching that airplane was, uh, uh, "My God, you know, how do how do you land with a propeller and no landing gear?" And I didn't realize that, that you had folding propellers. Yeah, yes. You know, it's going to be great, Fitz, when we take him to one of our flying events. He's going to be like a little kid again. I think we should either get a camera or a microphone on him because he's just going to get so giddy about what the technology is today on aviation. It's like, how, do, how does that work? <laughs> right. I think for a lot of people who have been out of the hobby even for 10 years, they would be amazed at how far it's progressed. But a significantly bigger gap here. So, yeah, it's going to be like science fiction. <laughs> yeah, let us hold your hand and take you into the realm of the future. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds well, like he needs to come the best. Oh, or that, oh my yeah. gosh, that would be awesome. 
A what? Uh, best. It's a it's a fly-in in the north part of Houston called. Uh, it's an acronym for the best electric in South Texas. Texas, excuse me. Best. Uh, it happens in the fall, but it's a really wonderful fly-in. Uh, event that lasts several days and it pulls people from the Dallas area and the surrounding states and stuff. And it's, it's really known for having a real eclectic and, and motley crew of aircraft that show up model aircraft. Uh, and only electric powered, only electric powered, electric powered and gliders. And you have everything from ornithopters to micro size aircraft to large giant scale electric aircraft and everything in between space shuttles too. Oh yeah, space shuttle. <laughs> a real control space shuttle shows up quite often. Flying lawnmower too. Oh my! Yeah, we'll take him to both extremes. We'll take him to that, and then we'll take him on over to Monoville for the big, big oh, yeah. Warbird event. And then he'll just completely be shocked. We'll get you a chair. We'll let you sit down. <laughs> <laughs> it is overwhelming, but it is truly amazing. Now, what? What's the other one? Oh, the the warplanes. Yeah. It's different. Yeah, there's one that specializes in giant scale warbirds, uh, okay. gas power, glow power, and some electric. Uh, that happens every year as well. It's you see some very very large aircraft and some very nicely detailed scale aircraft that show up. Oh, me, okay. Well, I we pretty well burned up your evening here. <laughs> Professor, not only do I appreciate you being on the show, and and I had an enjoyable time listening to you. I know our our listeners are going to enjoy that because finally we bring some more intelligence to our show. I, I'm I'm the weakest link. But I I'm going to offer not only to to see you soon and hopefully take you to an event, but I would love to have you back. Okay. Well, I don't know what more I might add, but anyway. Yeah. Oh, we're going to just pick episodes on the show on your engines of ingenuity and just jump on it. Because I have a, I have a feeling we're going to get letters from listeners saying we need him back. Let me just say that I've enjoyed this very much and I've enjoyed meeting you all and I wish I could do it in, per- in, in person. And uh, I'm hoping it's real soon. So Fitz, get on that. Hi, <laughs> <laughs> nice, sir. I'm assigning it to Fitz. <laughs> <laughs> Machine accepted. Uh, yes, Professor uh, Leanhart, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, oh. We really appreciate it. It's been just wonderful talking to you. Okay, and it's wonderful to talk to a bunch of builders. Thank you, and good Indeed. evening. Take care. Thank you. Please visit our website at rcroundtable.com, where you can send us comments and suggestions or listen to our other great podcasts where you will also find links to our iTunes and social media sites. Thanks for listening.